So, we are in our summer sermon series, Under the Sun, Popular Culture, Biblical Wisdom. Here's what we're saying. We're saying, we know the world we live in, the culture that surrounds us. We know that that world is sending our way all sorts of messages, right? All day, every day, we are in a information, information-saturated world. We're getting messages all the time. Some of them are hopeful, helpful, encouraging messages. Some of them are other kinds of messages. And so we're just, we're just taking the summer and we're saying, when we look out at popular culture, the sorts of ideas, the movies, the music, the, the social media personalities, when we look at the messages that are coming at us from our culture, do we feel like those messages have a dissonance or a resonance with the messages that we hear in God's word? Words that for millennia, faithful people have found true life-giving, a foundation, a source for all that we need in our lives. Under the sun, popular culture, and biblical wisdom. And this morning, (laughs) I'm just so excited. I remember I was in, actually, I don't know what grade I was in. I was trying to do the math because it was 1986 that the movie Top Gun came out. And I was in my neighbor. Eric Johnson's basement. So it must have been a few years after 1986, because I was probably younger than my mom would have let me watch that movie in 1986. But I was in my neighbor Eric Johnson's basement. He had this thick, what is it called, like shag carpet, the carpet where like if you stand it up on end, it's like, man, it's real long. And I had a big bowl of popcorn because Eric's mom loved to make popcorn and I love to eat popcorn. So really, it was fantastic. And I remember watching the first Top Gun. And oh, does anybody, I mean, can we agree that that was a great movie and we enjoyed that movie when it came out? And it was just, oh. And so, you know, when, when the news came that 36 years later, finally, the legacy sequel was going to come out, Top Gun Maverick, brief point for real geeks, um, the, the actual flight school, right, the, the Naval Fighter Academy that's nicknamed Top Gun, In the original Top Gun, they just capitalized the T and the G, but apparently in the new one where they're all caps, that's the right way. That's how, if you're like, if you're in the know, that's, and this is important for us to, um, here's what I like about the Top Gun movies. If If there was one most iconic line for me in the original Top Gun movie, it was when Goose and Maverick, two of the main characters, are walking to their airplane and they say, I feel the need. The need? God. And there's just, there's just something inside me that likes jets flying fast. It doesn't matter what they're doing. Just like jets flying fast. I just, I like that. And clearly a lot of other people like that because... Coming out of COVID, Maverick has blown box office you know, rates out of the water, over a billion dollars in worldwide sales already, far beyond many expectations. So clearly, I'm not the only one who likes movies about flying airplanes really, really fast. I, I wish I have flown an airplane really, really fast. I've talked to some of you who have, and you assure me, it's as great as it looks. <laughs> 
here's the interesting thing. Um, the, Maverick did a great job. There had, it had so many sort of, it paid homage to so many scenes in the original that were sort of recreated or lines that were repurposed in, in really beautiful ways. But you know what line didn't show up in Maverick? I feel the need for speed. They didn't put it in the new movie. But I've got a hypothesis. Here's my hypothesis. I think the reason they didn't put that line in the movie was because literally every other scene about the movie was basically about how fast you can fly an airplane. The opening scene is about how fast you can fly an airplane. The whole training sequence is about how fast you can fly an airplane. The whole closing battle sequence is about how fast you can fly an airplane when other airplanes are trying to shoot your airplane, which makes for some fun watching. But all that brings me to a, a real problem that I have. I have a problem, people. I need to let you know. I have, like, maybe I have multiple problems, but I want to talk about one of them right now. I, I like action movies. Like, when Micken is out of town for any reason, that's when I watch the list of action movies that she doesn't want to watch with me. I, I like action movies. I, I liked the original and the new Top Gun. It's fun. Just talking about it is fun. I'm going to stop talking about it soon because you didn't come here just to hear me talk about Top Gun. That's not the point. But, but, it's a, it's a, there's a big but. What I'm going to spend the rest of our time doing this morning, though I love the movie, is I'm actually going to spend some time critiquing one of the big cultural messages that I see in movies like Top Gun, or really just our all-around love for and willingness to spend lots and lots and lots of money on being entertained by violence. That's what I'm going to critique this morning, and I'm going to do it by asking this question. If one of the most iconic lines out there is, I feel the need, I feel the need for speed. And if we can, if you'll go with me for a second, I'm going to talk more about this in a bit. If you'll go with me for a second and acknowledge that the need for speed is actually just a placeholder for all of this action, excitement, fast planes, fighter jets that, that the movie does an awesome job celebrating. If that's what the movie is all about, if that's what a lot of people come and watch the movie for, then as faithful Jesus followers, we're trying to make our way, our way in the world. Here's my question. What do you, what do I, what do we feel the need for? What's the thing in our heart that drives us, that motivates us, that compels us, that is almost insatiable, like a thirst that's so deep you literally would drink any liquid in front of you? That's how much you need it. And, and before I, I give a, a, what I think is a biblical answer to that question, let me just acknowledge. Okay, the movie Top Gun, it's an action movie. We watch it because they they flew planes really fast, and man, did they just do a good job. Um, to be fair, I think movies like Top Gun are trying to, while maybe the selling point is, is the fast airplanes, they're also setting it in a world where there are pilots willing to risk their lives to fight bad guys. And I'm not trying to say that that idea of people willing to risk their lives to fight for good, I, I'm in no way trying to critique or question that. What I think, however, is as noble as that may be, when I look at the culture around us, too often what I see 
is the desire for good to win over evil, even at the risk of own life, too often in our culture, I think it takes a back seat to just a celebration of violence for violence sake or action for entertainment's sake. And I think the need for speed comes first too often and gets celebrated too much. And again, I say that as somebody who likes it, but that is my critique, is I think we live in a world that misplaces the order of things. If we live in a, in a, in a broken world where sometimes good people need to stand up and be willing to fight against evil, too often it's the fight that gets celebrated in our world and not the battle against evil that gets celebrated in our world. And so that's my starting point. Here's my question. What do you, if you're going to be a Jesus follower, what do you feel the need for? And I think Jesus actually answered that in a pretty clear way. Uh, A lot of different scriptures we could turn to, but here's the one that is kind of my launching point biblically this morning. Jesus gathered a bunch of his disciples. He went up on a hillside and he gave one of the longest sermons in which he, uh, one of his longest sermons in which he laid out basically his entire moral vision for the world. We often call it the Sermon on the Mount. And right at the beginning of that, he gave a list of blessings. Blessed are those who. And with Jesus' blessings, he completely inverted, (laughs) inverted, I mean, that was just on accident. That was just fun. Um, a lot of the way modern, both modern and ancient people thought. And one of the blessings Jesus gave was this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, you might say, feel the need for righteousness. For they will be filled. Here's my hypothesis for the morning. If our world, if a lot of the entertainment industry in our world uh, can seduce us into putting the excitement of violence or warfare ahead of the cause behind it, the biblical counterweight is that our hunger and thirst should be for righteousness. That is the animating, the motivating, the driving desire in our lives as Jesus followers. Pray with me. Um, God, help us. There's so many. If we're going to talk about righteousness, if we're going to talk about the related idea of justice, God, as we think about what it means to be people who hunger and thirst, feel this yearning for righteousness, give us sharp and attentive minds. Give us open and soft hearts. Help us disentangle the many competing and and, and complicated factors of, of how we live out your vision in this broken world. Give me clarity as I speak. Give us discernment as we listen, not to my voice, but together, God, as we listen to your voice. May that be what we're about this morning. Amen. Um, okay, I want to, two, two, uh, two short preface notes. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, righteousness, I'm not, not sure if you know this, it's an English word, and the Bible was not written in English. So just to kind of name that up front. So a couple things to say about this English word, righteousness. 
When we look at the broad biblical, the whole biblical story, righteousness and the related word justice are interconnected. Sometimes actually the same Greek or Hebrew word can be translated alternatively as justice or righteousness depending on the context. So when I said earlier that I want to talk about justice this morning, but then I put a verse up that said righteousness, biblically speaking, those aren't two, like, those aren't two ideas that you can actually separate all that much, but those are two different ways of looking at the same idea. In English, justice is often more externally focused. Justice is something that happens in the world around us, whereas righteousness is often more internally focused. It's something that I am or do or become. But in the biblical narrative, the external and the internal are meant to be interconnected with one another. So just to acknowledge, I'm going to, from now on for the rest of the sermon, I'm actually going to talk, I mean, you use the word justice more frequently, but I, I think they're almost interchangeable in a lot of ways. Second, and I'm going to unpack this more, but one of the big correctives, biblically speaking, if we want to think about justice according to biblical standards, we have to think of it this way. Justice, the aim of biblical justice, is always restoration. When we're thinking about the message of the world around us, the message of the culture around us, and we're comparing or contrasting that to the teaching of Scripture, we have to recognize that too many depictions of justice and I think Top Gun Maverick is an example, are described as, well, if I destroy the bad guy, justice has been served. In the biblical narrative, crime, or I mean, I should say punishment or consequence are certainly always part of correcting injustices, but it is never a completion or a fulfillment of it because God's desire demonstrated on the cross is that the consequences of sin are not the ending point, but rather the healing and restoration of all that is broken. That is always the ending point. There's an there's a author, his name is Herman Bavnik. Whew, such a good name. And he wrote one of the great classical works on all of the characteristics of God. And when he talked about God's justice. Here's how Herman Bavnik described it. He says, God's restorative justice is far more prominent in scripture than his retributive justice. They're both there, but the desire for restoration is front and center. To do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Okay, so we've got a cultural reference point, and I'm sure many other cultural images, movies, ideas have come to mind. We've got kind of a biblical launch pad for Jesus said we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. What I want to spend the rest of our time this morning is looking at, um, quite, quite frankly, when I landed on this text, I was surprised at myself that this is where I decided to go, because I was like, Carl, this doesn't make any sense. But I, I try to, you know, I try to be faithful, I try to study, I try to listen, I try to pray and go where God leads, and so we're going to do it. Um, I'm going to look at a psalm this morning, Psalm 109. It's a psalm, if you want to go there right now, um, it's a psalm that King David wrote, and he wrote this psalm 
after he had been treated wrongly by some enemies. This psalm is an expression of David's heart after he had suffered injustice. Now remember, we just said hunger and thirst for righteousness, biblical righteousness, biblical justice never ends with punishment or consequence, but always tries to carry through to the full restoration. Um, And we see that theme throughout scripture in many, many places. And I give that preface all, it'll make sense when you read King David's response to his enemies treating him wrong. I'm going to start in verse 6. This is Psalm 109, verse 6. David is praying to God. God, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. And may a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one (laughs) extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of the fathers be remembered before the Lord. And may the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may blot out their name from the earth. What in the world? All right, I want to give you a really great um, vocabulary word. The vocabulary word is imprecatory. Everybody say imprecatory. What we just read is an imprecatory psalm. They came up with a whole word just to describe this whole psalm, and there's a handful of others, dedicated to praying for evil things to happen to your enemy. And as if this wasn't bad enough, there's a couple other psalms. One of them is Psalm 37 that has, uh, quite frankly, a, a, a verse or an image in Scripture that many atheists have pointed to and said, that's why I'm not a Christian, because if that's in your holy scriptures, count me out. Um, this is Psalm 137, not a Psalm of David, um, but it's, Psalm 137 is actually a, it's a pretty beautiful song of worship to God. <laughs> and then after this sort of beautiful, heartwarming prayer, the author puts this line at the end, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. So that's what I'm going to preach on this morning for the next 15 minutes or so. Um, But here's why. Because scripture is filled with with some disturbing and some difficult and some complicated images. And if we can acknowledge that the messages we get from the world around us are often in conflict or contrast with the words of scripture, then we need to take seriously what's in here and untangle some of the complexity. So here's my question. If God calls us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to pursue justice, if scripture shows us examples of 
generous and sacrificial giving for the good and for the protection of others, coming to the defense of those who are weak, helping those who are needy, if, if that's the overarching message of Scripture, if Christ on the cross is the ultimate example of God saying, and this is what it looks like, why does the psalmist pray so fervently for suffering to come upon his enemy? Why is that in there? What am I supposed to do with that? To be honest, what I want to do is just pretend like it's not there. That would be a much easier thing for me to do. But I don't think that's a good idea. And so that's not what we're going to do. So I want to make three reflections on on answer to this question. Why, why, Why this hate speech in our scripture? Um... And full disclosure, most of what I share is not mine. Most of what I share in general is not mine. I steal it from other authors and preachers. But it's especially not mine today. Uh, A lot of it, if you want more, buy C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms. Oh, and just his chapter on this alone, and there's actually three chapters kind of connected. Whew! So good. Um, okay, three answers to the question. If we're, if we're called to pursue justice, why this hate speech? What is it doing in our scripture? What is it teaching us? First of all, here's the first thing it teaches us. Vengeance, it's a natural response. If you look at the natural world around us, violence and vengeance and retribution and injustice is very natural, <laughs> Animals and the animal kingdom uh, and many other creatures destroy one another for no apparent reason on, on a regular basis. And sure enough, as humans, I think if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that even if words like this in the Psalms are uncomfortable, even if maybe we don't think quite that explicitly evil, I think we have to acknowledge that this type of desire to get revenge on evildoers, it happens. It's natural. So the first thing I think the presence of this psalm in Scripture does is it, it gives us an invitation or maybe, maybe more so a challenge. It says, as we're faithfully trying to follow Christ, we're invited by God's word to be honest with God, even, maybe especially, about our ugliest, our darkest, our most uncomfortable thoughts. Most of us wouldn't be willing to say these things out loud, and King David not only said them out loud, and he wrote them down, and he put them in Scripture so that you and I would be confronted with this idea that maybe, just maybe, we have some of the same kinds of thoughts and desires. The only difference is, unlike David, um, we don't have the courage to acknowledge them. So, Um, reflection one when we read words like this in scripture I think it's always an invitation to honesty about some of the ugliest things inside our hearts maybe not honesty with everybody but certainly honesty with God and certainly honesty with trusted friends and companions on our journey second thing second reflection um Why are these words in here? King David has been wronged, and so he's responding to this wrongdoing with just just awful language. The second thing I think it reveals is this. The undisguised hatred in the Psalms reveals the true pain caused by injustice. 
Which means when we read these words and we find them a little uncomfortable, but then we go, ooh, ooh, maybe I've thought or felt things like that as well. Then once we have acknowledged, confessed that natural response, we also have to acknowledge, ooh, and when I do wrong to others, it hurts them. It injures them. Scripture wants to make sure that we never let ourselves off the hook for the way that all of us, in fact, can and sometimes do hurt one another. Or you could say it this way. The psalmist demands confession in our pursuit of justice. Because the fact of the matter is, there is no one, there is no human among us who is free from sin, who is without guilt, who has never done wrong, but rather all of us in some way, whether small or large, contributes to the very problems that we see in the world out there. And Christians have always been people whose humility leads us to confession. Third brief reflection on why this psalm is in there. So if vengeance is a natural response, and that leads us to the confession that we sometimes do wrong and that can injure others, it also means that the words David put in here, those desires are wrongful desires. That psalm we read was David expressing things that it is wrong for him to want. And here's how I know it's wrong. Twofold. First of all, Jesus said, here's how Christians live. Love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus said. Okay, okay, David came before Jesus, a little bit before Jesus. So that would be unfair to put Jesus' love ethic on the shoulders of David. You're right, unfair. So let's go back to Leviticus. That came earlier. Uh, Leviticus said, do not hate your brother in your heart. Or here, Proverbs. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. What David is saying is not an example of what we should desire. It's an example of something wrong to desire. And Lewis does a really interesting thing in his reflections on on what do we make of that. He says, you know, maybe, because David is a celebrated character in Scripture. He is called the man after God's own heart. He did a, a lot of good and right and great things for God. And yet he also messed up and stumbled in a lot of ways. So what do we do with this sort of split personality that I think, if we're honest, a lot of us feel, right? Ah, sometimes I do good and I want good and I pursue good. And sometimes, woo, let's, let's just not tell too many people about that part of my heart, right? Here's Lewis's conclusion. He says, maybe if we're sympathetic to the person of David, it's evidence that even if David's methods are wrong, he still is passionate about justice. He's passionate about people who suffer wrongdoing, having that injustice made right. Maybe this psalm is evidence that, sure, David is kind of fumbling his way through it, but at least he wants God to do justice. Even if his prayers are misguided, he still wants it. And here's the 
story Lewis tells that really, um, really kind of struck me um, as an example of this very idea that deep down, if we have the right passion and motivation, we might mess up on our execution of it, but at least the passion is there. Here's the story Lewis tells. Uh, I took a night journey during the Second World War in a compartment full of young soldiers. Their conversation made it clear that they totally disbelieved all that they had read in the papers about the wholesale cruelty of the Nazi regime. They took it for granted, without argument, that this was all lies, all propaganda, put out by our own government to pep up our troops. And the shattering thing was that, believing this, they expressed not the slightest anger. That our rulers should falsely attribute the worst of crimes to some of their fellow men in order to induce other of their fellow men to shed their blood seemed to the soldiers a matter of course. They weren't even particularly interested. They saw nothing wrong with it. Lewis then um, quotes, and I'll paraphrase, um, pretty well-known author Eli Wiesel, uh, Romanian-born Holocaust survivor, Nobel laureate, who's reflected a lot on the injustices he suffered in the world and has worked a lot to say, how do we right injustice. And Wiesel's comment is this, um, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of art or beauty is not ugliness. Uh, The opposite of faith is not heresy, but rather the opposite of all these is indifference. He makes the argument that the greatest injustice one could carry out against another human is to be completely indifferent to their cause whether for good or ill. So here's Lewis's conclusion. It's at least worth our reflection. What do we do when we read this psalm? What do we do when we see these words of hatred? One, we acknowledge that vengeance, we acknowledge that this craving for getting evil, for retribution, for you better get what's coming to you, we acknowledge it's it's a natural response. And that acknowledgement leads us to confess It's not just natural out there in some of you people, but it's actually present in my own heart as well. And we let it challenge us. Even if we fumble our way through it, we let it challenge us to say, therefore, I will passionately, I will not be indifferent, but I will passionately, I will will work towards being a person who acts God's justice. And maybe, maybe films like Top Gun, maybe the action movie industry, maybe the way that um, heroes are celebrated could be sympathetically interpreted along the same vein. Right or wrong, at least these are movies putting out there the valor of saying, I'm going to risk my life for the sake of others. Maybe we get it wrong in different ways, but at least we're celebrating people who try as opposed to people who simply step back, wash their hands, and do nothing. And I'm not going to make a final conclusion one way or another other than to ask us the question that on days like today I always hate asking us, but i got to do it anyway. What's your move going to be? God's word is not here for our knowledge. It's here for our transformation.
And to be transformed, knowing his word must be part of it, but doing his word is always the goal. So um, I don't think I've ever asked anybody to do this before. I'm going to ask all of us to do this. And if you're willing, I'd I'd really be interested to know if anybody actually does it. Um, think Think about an injustice in the world. Shouldn't have to think hard. Maybe it's something out there. Um, pretty far removed from you. Maybe it's something that you've suffered. And then what would it look like for you to write a prayer like David wrote that just says, ah, I don't know if these, if these desires I'm expressing are necessarily good or bad or right or wrong, but when I see that, when I think of how that person wronged me, when I think of that atrocity going on in the world, here's what, I, here's what really comes to my mind. One of the most celebrated characters in all of Scripture wrote the words we read earlier. What would it look like if we were truly honest about our own heart's desires and our own thoughts in the face of injustice? What would it look like if we could be honest about the darkest things in our lives. But then here's the second part. Jesus, Jesus gave this other teaching just a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, um, love your friends and hate your enemies. But let's be honest. This is, this is my paraphrase. Let's be honest. Anybody can do that. Not very hard to love your friends and hate your enemies. Here's what I say to you. Jesus said, here's what I say to you. Uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if we, if we consider an injustice, whether directly against us or in the world out there, and, and we were to write an imprecatory psalm, if we were to write down our honest sort of, oh, God, I just wish you would do this, could we then hold that that person or those people, the, the, the person causing pain and hurt in the world, could we hold that person or those people in our minds and following the lead of Jesus, pray for them? Maybe this prayer, one of the priestly blessings of the Old Testament. God, bless them and keep them. May God's face somehow shine upon them and be gracious to them. God, would you look upon, may God look upon you with kindness and give you his peace. I don't, I would never mean to suggest that this type of prayer should take the place of the very real need for healthy process, maybe even counseling to process trauma that can be caused by wrongdoing for many of the other systems and uh, structures in place in the world to, to fight injustice. I'm not I'm not suggesting that this is sort of like, oh, well, we check this box and maybe that'll cure it all. But what I am suggesting is that as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, part of that essentially is the the work God wants to do, not only in correcting the injustice out there, but also in, in curing the sicknesses of our own heart. And part of that is to take seriously Jesus's word, to pray for those who persecute us and persecute the people around us. And, and I, I'll be honest, I, I, I wrote this and I said, why would, why would somebody really do that? Like, how, how could you really pray for somebody that way? 
And I think the answer is, if we are people, we would do this if we are people who truly hunger and thirst, who truly feel the need for God's justice and righteousness. Would you pray with me? God, we we read these strange words, these unsettling words, these uncomfortable words, spoken by a great king of the nation of Israel, King David, against one of his enemies. Um, God, we consider the, the way our world talks about and thinks about justice broadly, but certainly also... Well, it makes a lot of money selling movies about action and violence and warfare and bloodshed. And, and we just wonder, God, is, is the message of the world out there, is it honoring, God, what you are teaching us? Uh, help us to be people who start with a deep and vulnerable honesty with you, our God, about what's actually in our hearts. And from that confession, God, would you, would you light a flame that would make us passionate for the justice, for the restoration, for the righteousness that you, our God, desire. Not only for us, but for all people. May that be so, we pray. Amen.